1: Hello, this is Mehdi Hassan. And before we get to today's show, I have a small request. The Intercept and Deconstructed rely on readers and listeners like you to support the journalism that we do here every day. Right now, you can head to theintercept.com forward slash give and do just that. Membership is not only about money, it's about a proud and public declaration of support for the kind of fierce adversarial journalism we do every day. All donations are welcome. Consider becoming a sustaining member at $5 or $10 a month. It may seem small, but it has a big impact over time. Your donation, no matter what the amount, does make a difference this is a community effort when everyone chips in it adds up quickly deconstructed has big plans for 2020 with your support election coverage debate coverage more live events out on the road like our recent show in dc with michael moore and ilhan omar so please do consider becoming a member head to the intercept.com forward slash give that's the intercept.com forward slash give on to the show When was the last time you spoke to a family
2: member? Uh, Last summer. Last summer 2018? Yes. You haven't spoken to a family member in China for nearly 18 months? I have aging parents. I cannot call them.
1: I'm Mehdi Hassan. Welcome to a special end-of-the-year episode of Deconstructed. A bonus, if you will, in which we'll examine, discuss cast a light on what's become perhaps the biggest human rights crisis in the world this year, even though it still, in my view, doesn't get enough
2: attention globally, including here in the West. As a lawyer, as an advocate, as a Uyghur, I believe that my people are going through a modern-day cultural genocide. That's
1: my guest today, Nuri Turkel, a prominent Uyghur American lawyer and human rights campaigner. Nuri says China is carrying out a cultural genocide, Against his people. So, why isn't the world, why aren't we doing more to stop it? Who are the Uyghurs and why do they matter? Why should they matter? Well, they're one of the 56 ethnic groups officially recognized by the Chinese government, a mainly Muslim, Turkic speaking minority group who comprise less than 1% of the Chinese population, though they live in China's biggest province, Xinjiang or East Turkestan, as many Uyghurs prefer to call it, especially those who support independence from China. Now, the Chinese government has been cracking down on the Uyghurs for decades. But post 9-11, Beijing took advantage of George Bush's so-called War on Terror to brand all opposition to Chinese rule as evil Islamic terrorism of the Al-Qaeda variety. In recent years, they've gone much further, and now seem to see all Uyghurs as potential terrorists, extremists separatists. The Chinese government is making no apologies for the way it's running Xinjiang. It has told the UN that there's been a major crackdown there in order to rein in violent Islamic extremism and those who would separate Xinjiang from the rest of China. Beijing has banned Uyghur parents from naming their sons Muhammad, blocked their children from entering mosques, forbade Uyghur government employees from fasting during Ramadan. Uyghur Muslim men are prohibited from growing, quote, abnormally long beards, while Uyghur Muslim women cannot wear the face veil in public. But you might say, well, that's the kind of garden variety Islamophobia that we're seeing growing even in some European states. The Chinese, though, have taken it to new and horrifying levels. A panel of UN investigators said last year that up to a million Uyghur Muslims may have been detained in what are basically massive concentration camps in Xinjiang. Earlier this year, the State Department said the true number might be closer to 3 million. To put that in context, the Uyghur population of Xinjiang is around 11 million people. So anywhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 4 of the total Uyghur population in that province is being detained against their will, kept in camps, imprisoned. That's an astonishing number of people, both as an absolute number and as a proportion of their population. And those who have been released, those who have fled the country, say that in those camps, Uighur Muslims are being not just forcibly brainwashed to love President Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and hate Islam, but also starved, sterilized, tortured, raped, and yes, killed. And look, it's not just life in the camps that's so brutal and intolerable and like nothing we've seen before in the modern era. It's also life outside of the camps, across Xinjiang, a province which has been turned in recent years into a kind of dystopian police state. Earlier this year, the New York Times reported that the Chinese authorities are using a vast secret system of advanced facial recognition technology to track and control the Uyghurs, as they move around, go to work, go to school. The Times called it, quote, the first known example of a government intentionally using artificial intelligence for racial profiling. Racial profiling of an entire people in a province. And that's outside their homes. Inside of their homes, as Human Rights Watch documented last year, they have had to deal with Communist Party snoopers from the Han Chinese majority community who have been sent to stay in Uyghur homes and monitor them. Imagine that. Just imagine men from the government coming to stay in your home, to live in your house 24-7, to watch you and your family talk, eat, pray. It's almost beyond belief. But it's happening in the world right now, in Xinjiang, China.
2: The authorities say the camps are for combating violent religious extremism. Now, some Uyghur parents speaking in exile have told the BBC that as well as losing adult relatives, their children too have disappeared and they are not being told where they're held.
1: And though the Chinese deny it and deny the camps and deny the repression, a recent and pretty unprecedented leak of government papers from the Communist Party to the New York Times, dubbed the China Cables, confirm both that the president of China himself has called for the showing of, quote, no mercy against the Uyghurs, and that one senior Communist Party official in Xinjiang tried to stop some of these repressive measures against the Uyghurs, and he failed. He himself was imprisoned. This is a document the world was never supposed to see. Instructions on how to run a detention camp.
3: The documents show that Chinese government officials designed the camps as brainwashing centres on a massive scale.
1: China says there's nothing to worry about. The camps are just for training. Here's the thing to remember, though. The Chinese government isn't just powerful at home. It's powerful abroad. Its economic clout and sheer size means that governments, including Western governments, can't or won't do much to help the Uyghurs. I mean, there's the occasional protest or stern letter. In July, for example, 22 nations, including the UK and France and Canada, signed a letter addressed to the UN calling on China to end its massive detention programme in Xinjiang. Last month, the United States Congress passed an act restricting the sale of surveillance technology to Beijing and bringing in sanctions against Chinese officials involved in locking up Uyghurs. And to be fair, even the usually Islamophobic Trump administration has taken a strong line against the repression of the Uyghurs. Here's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking over the summer. China is home to one of the worst human rights crises of our time. It is truly the stain of the century. Though, of course, the Trump administration doesn't like China already because of the trade war. And so be under no illusion. The moment Trump signs some sort of trade agreement with China and the trade war with Beijing ends, his administration, I suspect, will stop saying anything or giving a damn about the Uyghurs. But look, it's easy to slam Trump or the US or the West for not doing enough here. But as a Muslim... It is deeply depressing to me to see the countries of the Muslim majority world not just silent on this looming genocide against the Uyghurs in China, but actually coming out publicly and backing the Chinese government. Yeah, backing it. Just a few days after those 22 Western nations published their anti-China letter in July, 37 other nations put out a pro-China letter saying that because of the, quote, grave challenge of terrorism and extremism, China has undertaken a series of counter-terrorism and de-radicalization measures, including setting up vocational education and training centers. Vocational education and training centers. My God. In fact, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, went to Beijing earlier this year and said it was China's right. It's right to put Muslims in camps for anti-terror purposes. Thank you, MBS. Earlier this month, I interviewed the Pakistani Human Rights Minister, Shirin Mazari, on my Al Jazeera English show up front. I asked her, as the Human Rights Minister, whether she would condemn the horrific mistreatment and mass incarceration of her fellow Muslims, the Uyghurs, at the hands of the Chinese. Pakistan happens to be a close ally of China, dependent on Chinese investment and money. Here's how that exchange went down.
0: We talk to the Chinese government. When we get evidence, we take it up. But China is an ally of ours and we will not go screaming on the streets about it. So So have you condemned them privately?
1: Have you condemned them privately? I
0: think that our government has been speaking to the Chinese, hearing their point of view, giving our position. What is their point of view view when it
1: it comes to locking up millions of your fellow Muslims?
0: That's what you're saying, that they're locking up millions of fellow Muslims. Are you
1: saying they're not?
0: I am saying that there may be cases and we have taken it up with the Chinese. That's how we deal with our allies.
1: So who's going to speak up for the Uyghurs, either in the West or in the Muslim-majority world? Are we really going to all just sit back and watch a cultural genocide in which the Chinese government tries to wipe out Uyghur culture, faith, history, heritage? Are we going to watch that unfold in front of our eyes? Watch millions of innocent people rounded up and put into camps? Or is there anything that can be done to help what is now one of the world's most repressed minority communities? My guest today is Nuri Turkel, a Uyghur-American lawyer and campaigner and board chair for the Uyghur Human Rights Project here in Washington, D.C. Nuri Turkel, thanks so much for joining me on Deconstructed. There are some horrible, horrific reports coming out of Xinjiang, China. You are a Uyghur-American. Presumably, you still have family living there. What has happened to them in Xinjiang? What are they going through? Are Are you able to speak
2: about that without putting them in danger? Uh, because of this uh, IGOP uh, that has been on the news a lot, uh, integrated John operation platform, the Chinese government forced, to, forced Uyghurs to install spying software on their phones. That resulted, that forced Uyghur families to cut off their foreign-based uh, relatives and family members, including myself. So because of that uh, technological way of monitoring Uyghurs' daily activities, daily communication, uh, most parents... Uh, disconnected from their family members. That is uh, causing anxiety, despair, a sense of guilt to the extent. In some instances, uh, Uyghurs find out uh, about their, their loved one's passing on newspaper articles. So when was the last time you spoke to a family member? Uh, last summer. Last summer,
1: 2018? Yes. You haven't spoken to a family member no, in I, China for no, nearly
2: 18 I, months. I have an aging uh, parents. I cannot call them. Because you worry about putting them in danger. Yes. And you're
1: quite high profile, obviously, with yes. the Uyghur Human Rights Project.
2: Yes. If you call them, there's no directive. It says you cannot talk to or receive or make phone calls. The Chinese don't have an official directive. They don't do that. But because of this way, uh, intrusive way of monitoring daily irregular communications, if the system, uh, the algorithm picks up something, then the family members will be in trouble. Because of that, we try to not to contact them. So it's you know it's like excruciating experience. We used to have uh, about two years ago. Uh, I always say this, and when I say this, people may find it um, incredible. I would love to go back to my semi-normal life two years ago in a heartbeat. At least uh, during that period, I could uh, call regularly, check up with my parents. But now that kind of basic freedom have been uh, freedom has been taken away from us. And what kind of stories are you hearing from your fellow Uyghurs in the diaspora? Uh- What's shocked you,
1: even as an activist, campaigner, lawyer, following this horrific situation for many years now? What's the most shocking thing you've heard?
2: The the absolutely arbitrary nature of China's uh, detention of the Uyghurs. Uh, recently leaked documents uh, published by ICIJ uh, has uh, so many disturbing uh, lines, but one of them really caught my attention is that during the period of seven days in 2018, 2017, uh, the uh, IJOP, the uh, operating system, identified 25,000 Uyghurs. Of that, they were able to locate close to 16,000. And with, with that kind of uh, basic process of relying on the technology, they shattered close to 16,000 people's lives in less than one week. So those 16,000 people were detained based on yes. those algorithms and surveillance. Yes, that's how horrific it is. And then in this same document does not say if this has been an effective method. They just These report. are official internal Chinese Communist yes. Party documents. Yeah, it's on, it's on the ICIJ's yeah. website.
1: And the New York Times also published part right. of these as, as the China Cables. Is it fair to say that every Uyghur
2: Muslim you know here in the U.S., has stories about disappeared relatives. It is hard to find anyone who has not been effective. You can you can easily find someone whose family either disappeared, or someone they that they know, associated with, have disappeared. The one of the most jarring aspects of this whole crisis is the uh, the way that the Chinese government is attacking the Uyghur women and children, the forcing Uyghur women to sleep. And eat with strangers in their home—it's a taboo in Islam. And what we're talking about is—is is a, a very devout, a pious Muslim families, and they're making the Uyghur kids to spy on their parents if the parents are still living together. Uh, you know, asking questions like, "Do your parents still read the Quran? Uh, do they instruct you to speak Uyghur? Do they ask you not to mingle uh, or hang out with Han Chinese people?" It's things like that. So it's a full
1: kind of cultural theological assault. It's Uyghur language, Uyghur culture, Uyghur
2: religion, the Islamic religion right. that's under assault. The, when you um, when you look at their practices, actually this has been verified by the leaked documents, uh, the Chinese Communist Party Secretary. People call him president, but he's not really president. He's a general secretary of Communist Party. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping specifically said that uh, used the word uh, thought viruses. What does that mean? Thought viruses is basically Uyghur's Islamic faith. So that thought viruses need to be cleared out. Islam is a virus. Islam is a virus. And and then uh, another term that they use repeatedly is uh, thought transformation. So basically they're reprogramming a living, breathing human being. Which is why they call these camps re-education camps, or
1: critics call these camps re-education camps. They call it vocational and training centers, ridiculously. What is your understanding of what is going on inside these camps? Aside from the violence, we have reports of torture, of horrific reports of fingernails being pulled out and electric shocks and beatings and sexual assault of women. Aside from that, if I can even say the phrase aside from that, what actually are the Chinese trying to do in their own warped... The Chinese government, what is it trying to do in its own warped mind inside of these camps with the
2: Uyghurs when you talk about reprogramming? Two words, transformation and force them to become loyal to the Communist Party and Xi Jinping. So basically, they're trying to transform the Uyghur soul, mind and heart. To be loyal to xi jinping and to the ccp communist party so it's not just to communism it's to the dictator it's a personality yes cult. there is a uh, app actually in china available and some of some people actually uh, forced to install that it's called xi jinping thoughts app you have to study uh these leak i'm keep referring to the, these leaked documents because it's so important in these leaked document leaked document it says they have a scoring system one of the criterias for any individuals to have as simple as as, uh, as calling to be able to talk to their family members is based on how well that they studied Xi Jinping thoughts, how well that they were able to study the language, how well that they were able to adopt non-religious uh, ideology, like in, in other words, denouncing their religion. That has been part of the Uyghur lives as, as early as 13th century.
1: And you're talking about app on phones. But in these camps, obviously, this is not about downloading an app. This is forcibly done. They're denied food. They're denied meals until they've gone through these weird rituals of singing in praise of the president, praising communism, praising Xi Jinping.
2: Yeah, uh, and also these apps. um, uh, American companies, actually, technology, American Silicon Valley companies are assisting the Chinese government to set up these. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah, it is. um, And... um, one uh, particular app um, that the initially promoted uh, as if Islamic-friendly app, it's called Zapia allowed the Uyghurs to install. And this company is technologically supported in Silicon Valley, even though it's it's. A, so they compiled 1.5 million Uyghurs using that. It's like a file sharing. It's a it's a cloud system. So the people who downloaded uh, verses of Quran through that app and shared with each other, that resulted It was initially promoted as a uh, Muslim-friendly
1: app. And in these camps, there is this, as you say, treatment of Islam as a virus. What should we call these camps? Because I was talking to Sarah Leah Whitson the other day, who until very recently was a very senior official at Human Rights Watch, and she made an interesting point that we call them camps in the news, re-education camps. But actually, these are places of mass forcible detention. So should they just be called prisons?
2: uh, You can can call it prison, but uh, there's a lot of uh, historic parallels uh, to the Nazi concentration camps. When you look at that part of the history, Nazi Germany, uh, with the promotion of people like Adolf Heichmann and others, uh, promoted uh, extermination of the Jews based on their religion, based on their ethnicity, right? The same parallel has been seen in the leaked documents. They use the words like dictatorship, like a crushing, rounding up anyone who should be rounded up. And also they're using, uh, they're specifically targeting Uyghurs' ethno national identity. Yeah. So I think it's, 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 it is uh, reasonable to call it at least modern-day concentration camps. You've invoked the analogy of of Nazi Germany, and you
1: mentioned that the ethno-national identity of the Uyghurs is being targeted. So would you describe what the Chinese government is doing
2: right now as a genocide in the making? It is, you know, when you look at the legal definition of uh, cultural genocide, to be specific, um, whatever the Chinese has been doing, uh, the government has been doing, fits, meets the legal definition. Attacking the Uyghur children, attacking the language, attacking the religion, attacking the uh, forcing Uyghur women to marry Han Chinese, birth control. So the, all of these hallmarks uh, supports, meets the definition of cultural genocide. So I'm very comfortable as a lawyer, as an advocate, as a Uyghur, I believe that my people are going through a modern-day um, cultural genocide. And that cultural genocide the Chinese government's aim is what? Is it to
1: try and change the demographics in Xinjiang, trying to import Han Chinese non-Muslims to replace the local uh, Turkic-speaking Uyghur Muslims? Is it about keeping quote-unquote stability in a very diverse, ethnically diverse, but centralized nation?
2: What they're trying to do is to uh, stamp out Uyghur identity and also make them atheist, believing in communist ideology, simply because the Uyghur Islam to the Chinese government or China's thought leaders, policymakers, uh, as a sign of disloyalty. Hmm. So as long as the Uyghurs stand, uh, stay, maintains their cultural identity, ethnic identity, religious practices, the Chinese government believes that it will potentially become a political threat. So, It's I've a been... preemptive way of, you know, it's very strange. We've yeah. seen this only in the movies. Even if you look at the people who are locked up and their policy objectives, their ultimate goals, all based on preemption. So I've interviewed several uh, defenders of the Chinese government, um,
1: Chinese defenders of the government. They're very specific about their defense of what's going on in Xinjiang. They say, we're not anti-Islam, we're not anti-Muslim, we're not anti-Uyghur. Um, We are anti-extremism, anti-terrorism, anti-separatism. They're obsessed with these three ideas, terrorism, extremism, separatism. And the measures that they're taking in Xinjiang province, they say, are no different to other countries who have done anti-terror measures and anti-terror laws and states of emergency. Um, What do you say in response to that? Because there have been Uyghur militants who have carried out terror attacks in China and abroad. There were Uyghur guys who ended up in Guantanamo Bay that's undeniable. But what do you say about the wider Chinese defense, the Chinese argument, which is, well, you know, who are you to criticize us? You know, the West has Guantanamo Bay. France had a state of emergency after their attack. We've successfully prevented any terrorist attacks in China by taking measures to stop, quote unquote, Islamic extremism
2: in Xinjiang. What do you say to them? The Chinese uh, national security policies is based on the perceived threat, not on the actual threat. They can claim that they're doing this uh, under the guise of, you know, fighting against extremism, but uh, when you look at the period that they often invoke, um, is uh, basically 2012 through 15. Post 2015, there is no single violent incidents that they can report. And also, when you but look. But
1: they say that in their favor. They say, see, it's our measures that have prevented a single terrorist attack it, it, in China.
2: Actually, it's the opposite. When you look at the, 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 uh, the events, the incidents, the, yeah. uh, the violence that they cite is no different than the ones that happen uh, uh, regularly in the other Chinese province. And they don't do the same method. But this is all about racism. This yep. is all about racism. This is all about opportunistic approach, hijacking some of the legitimate concerns expressed by people around the world.
1: And jumping on the war on terror
2: bandwagon yes. since and 2001. When you look at um, the New York Times uh, revelation last month, one of the five key uh, takeaways cited was Xi Jinping's uh, uh, directive to come up with an even harder uh, response than the 9-11 response that the United States showed and he also cited uh US withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan and other areas as a reason for beefing up this is all about you know well, they've certainly gone beyond the response
1: to 911 yeah. we all got up we all got worked up around the world when Guantanamo bay was opened Guantanamo right. bay is a walk in the park for actual accused uh, terrorists compared to what's happening in Xinjiang where somewhere between a million and three million? Pentagon, the numbers are astonishing.
2: Pentagon, uh, a senior official in charge of uh, uh, Indo-Pacific region, uh, Randy Shriver, said in late May that he believes, uh, his agency believes, up to three million have been... Uh, and that's Uyghurs plus, I believe, Kazakhs yeah. and other minority groups and then also. The, we need to point this out to your listeners. There are four types of camps. Maybe Randy was sh- uh, citing... Um, one of those camps the first one is the daily re-education that people go as part of their daily um, uh, report to work spend eight ten hours listening to uh, Chinese propaganda uh, study Xi Jinping thoughts that is actually the most favorite uh, uh, daily re-education and the second type is mass detention you just disappear and this is the one that I think the people generally focus because that, that that the number three million is based on how much, how many uh, how was the population of the certain uh, pocket of an area, and what is the remaining population? So Adrian Zenz recently modified his figure. It's also uh, not exactly the same uh, accurate number, but he's close to two million now. And then the third is the actual prison. They initially take you in. And then charge you from anywhere from 10 to 15 years. In some instances, we've been reading that uh, former, uh, well-known uh, scholars uh, impose death penalties. And then the last one, that they, the last one is the labor camps that they're showing on this uh, state media, uh, showing to the uh, sympathetic uh, government representatives from mostly Muslim countries. And they're coming out and phrasing, including MBS. Um, The MBS was very pleased at the way that Xi Jinping is treating the Uyghurs. So there are four types of camp. If you add them all together, I'm sure that it's more than three million. Wow. We hear a lot about Chinese communism in the West. But these days,
1: what Beijing seems to be doing to the Uyghurs, to me, seems driven more by a kind of nationalism. Uh, than communism, the kind of hard-right nationalism, ethno-nationalism that we're seeing across the world from Russia to India to Israel to the United States. Do
2: you put China in that same league? Yeah. Oftentimes when you uh, talk about the ongoing crisis, one of the legitimate questions uh, has been, uh, what is China's response? They are actually on board for the most part with Xi Jinping because of the growing nationalism approach to domestic and foreign affairs. If you go online, recently one of the American journalists wrote on the child separation, and her Twitter account was trashed with a lot of nasty messages and nationalistic messages. Like today, if you go to China, you cannot log into uh, Twitter. You cannot log into other social medias. But they dispatched three most influential uh, ambassadors, UK, Canada, and America, to launch uh, and nationalistic messages around the world. And the Chinese, Chinese government has been very effective, actually more so than the Western governments, to create this anxiety. Uh, that anxiety has been translated into public support. Mm-hmm. So it, you find very little evidence of Chinese intellectuals coming out in defense of the Uyghurs, or in defense of their own national interests in the long term. You know, they, they, they're just being short-sighted. They support the Xi Jinping's policy, uh, as if that's the way of being a patriotic yeah. uh, for the Chinese state. And we have we have a lot of pro-CCP people in this country. So whenever you said, oh, this is not in the interest of the United States, UK, or Canada, they took you as if that you're anti-China. And then it helps the nationalists in, uh, yeah. in China. It's, well, so it's, it, it is a kind of a chain reaction uh, situation.
1: And of course, you have this geopolitical rivalry right now between right. China and the United States. Uh, over trade at least um as a result of that, I would argue partly, I mean, you mentioned how Muslim-majority countries have let the Uyghurs down, and I mentioned that in the introduction uh, to this show. Um, interestingly, Western countries have taken a slightly stronger or more vocal stance in recent months, even the United States. Uh, do you welcome the recent Uyghur Act passed by Congress, which puts sanctions on some Chinese officials involved in Xinjiang and prevents the sale of surveillance technology uh, to Beijing? Will that make a difference?
2: I, um, as someone who's been uh, promoting working uh, on on this bill and other legislative initiatives. I welcome this move. It is a significant move. And uh, no country uh, ever in a Uyghur history, modern, ancient history, done anything similar to what has happened on the Capitol Hill. Uh, the bill in of itself is very substantive, on top of being a symbolic. On substance, it has it has mandate. It mandates the president to apply the Global Magnitsky Act. We've been talking about sanctioning Chinese officials in the last year and a half because of, you know, I can say this comfortably, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary who was opposing, the administration could not move forward. So this legislation will mandate that to happen Two, the export control. It's very significant. Chinese have turned this uh, prison system, mass incarceration, even violation of their own counterterrorism laws into political economy and potential way of expanding their political influence. So with this export control, we will be able to restrict U.S. tech firms, U.S. businesses, not only unwittingly, but wittingly uh, supporting Chinese state security. This is going to be very effective. And also, something has not been discussed. The Chinese are going crazy simply because this will create political instability. This will undermine CCP, undermine uh, Chairman Xi Jinping's authority. Here's why. These tech companies are invested by uh, Chinese billionaires, the social elites. Yeah. So you don't want to mess up with them. So are are you hopeful then that the response from China over
1: the medium to long term to this legislation, to the sanctions... Is that they will loosen can loosen up conditions in Xinjiang and start relaxing a little bit in order to kind of get the world off their back, or will they double down and say, "Screw you, rest of the world. We're going to respond with harsh measures again. We're going to sanction you guys, and we're going to carry on doing what we're doing with the Uyghurs."
2: I don't think that they will go harder. It's possible, but they've been cornered. Look at how they've been portrayed or perceived in the international community. They care so much so much about uh, the image. They do the care. face. Yeah, they do. I never seen the level of response from the Chinese government outside of the country trying to change the narrative, distract from the focus, Mm. you know, launching anti-American sentiment all around the world. This shows they realize uh, the pressure Mm. that is coming on their way. And then two, they have no choice, Matty. What are they going to do? They're losing their international stand. It's it's even hard to find somebody who can come to the media outlet to debate to discuss. Hmm. It would take a pro Chinese government stand these days. You used to have bunch of people dying to go on on the shows, you know, TV or give but interviews. But they know this is a problem. They can't for them. do it. It's unconscionable. They're losing. No, until, yeah,
1: until a few years ago, they had a semi-good news story about the Chinese yeah. economy, about other quote-unquote freedoms opening up the. Economic space. Yeah. But now, slowly, the Uyghur uh, issue is becoming a bigger issue. And the Trump administration has also used the Uyghur issue to bash China. We know the Trump administration doesn't like China for trade purposes. Uh, but Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, said over the summer that the treatment of the Uyghurs was, quote, the stain of the century. Quite harsh words. Do you worry, though, uh, that the minute they sign some trade deal with China, the t- tariff war ends, they'll just throw your people under the bus, the Trump administration?
2: Uh, it's, not, the, it's
1: not a genuine concern that they have. It here.
2: is a genuine concern because we don't know what president does uh, tomorrow or next hour. It is, you know, we have to be mindful about we clear clear about. Uh, what the president might be doing or might not president be doing. President Trump. Yes. Uh, we, I testified in I Congress. I doubt he's even heard of the Uyghurs, to be honest. I think Mike Pompeo is uh, probably I, the max. Uh, probably. Uh, but I, I give a lot of credit to others, uh, Pompeo, Sam yep. Brownback, and Mike Pence, and some senators uh, like Rubio. Yep. Um, and today, you know, this interesting Washington environment, David Nunes, agrees with Adam Schiff on the Uyghur issue. The mm. bill received 407 votes in the House. Interesting. And it has so over...
1: the Uyghurs managed to bring Democrats and Republicans together exactly. in a way that no other issue has.
2: Exactly. If, if, you, can, you can look around. You will be hard-pressed to find one issue that can even receive 220 so, votes, let alone 407 votes. So you've got, you've got those votes on
1: Capitol Hill. Important legislation was passed. It's still a mountain to climb. We don't know how the Chinese are going to respond in the medium to long run. What is your message to people listening at home today, both here in the U.S. and around the world, who perhaps had heard the name Uyghur but didn't really understand? stand it, who are now hearing you talk about cultural genocide and invoking the specter of Nazi Germany. This is a big deal. But what can ordinary people do to help your people in Xinjiang?
2: Two things. One, um, uh, this is not about China anymore. With China's Chinese government. This is about who we are as a people, as a civilization. We were told over and over again that no one should be punished based on their religion and ethnicity. That's how we brought up That's how we get educated. That's what we follow in our daily lives. So it's time for people to show up in the arena to fight with the Uyghurs. Organize public events. uh, Organize fundraisings to help the Uyghurs to build professional team. uh, Write to uh, their representatives, uh, particularly in the United States. One specific thing that I can ask uh, through your program is uh, to uh, ask uh, Muslim Americans or the people who supports the Uyghur cause to get on the phone and ask Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, to put S one seventy eight that has been recently passed in the House on vote. We're sitting on time bomb. The Uyghurs are canaries in a coal mine, uh, and, and American people can show up uh, and at least call uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer in the Senate to get this bill done. And there
1: are reports. One last question I have to ask you: there are reports of Chinese agents coming to the West coming to the U.S. to surveil, monitor, even target uh, Uyghur activists here. We saw what happened with the Saudis and Jamal Khashoggi. Do you worry for your own safety even
2: here in the U.S., your own security? Of course I worry, uh, like my fellow Uyghur uh, Americans here around the world, because Chinese have been uh, put on defense. Uh, they are no different than uh, Saudi Arabia or Russia, for that matter, to uh, you know, get even with their uh, opponents uh, or critics. So everyone need to be mindful. And also, they have not physically threatened anyone based on the public information available. But we do know it for a fact that they have been trying to recruit informants. They tried to uh, pressure uh, Uyghur victims not to speak out. We have been told that some, some, in some instance, Chinese officials trying to uh, bring the Uyghur activists to uh, Middle East, Dubai to be exact. A Netherlands-based newspaper reported that the uh, ex-husband of this Uyghur woman who provided one of the leaked documents, the operating manual, uh, was lured to a Dubai uh, and, and even asked, asked to spy on his ex-wife.
1: Nuri Turkel, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Keep fighting the good fight. You have our solidarity and stay safe.
2: Thank you so much, Mehdi. Uh, We appreciate that you're very popular among the Uyghurs because you picked up this fight uh, telling your audience, both at Al Jazeera and here, uh, early on when this issue was not even popular. But thank you so much for your persistent efforts to tell the truth to people. Appreciate it, Nuri. Thank you.
1: That's our show, Deconstructed as a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief, and I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. A good one. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at... At theintercept.com. Thanks so much. Deconstructed will be back in the new year, in a couple of weeks, in fact. So tune in then.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer.